Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christogenia on Talk Shoe. Praise Yahweh. It is Friday, July 8th, 2011. I'd like to start today's program off on a somber note. It's, well, I don't like to, but I'm sure that I should. It's um, unfortunate that that today I heard of um, Pastor Don Elmore, and and he had a serious stroke this morning. He's a dear friend, and his website is at fgcp.org. It's the Fellowship of God's Covenant People in Kentucky, and he will be in my prayers. And hopefully in yours also. The the um may Yahweh have mercy on him. Last week we talked about the Canaanite woman of Matthew chapter fifteen. I'm, I might get through Matthew before the end of the summer, maybe, but somehow I doubt it. But the um the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, that's been a long time, long, for a long time, that's been a topic of controversy and, and a subject so often misinterpreted in Christian discourse. Here I have something further, something to add to what I said on the topic last week, which I believe strengthens the arguments concerning the customs of the times and their traditional roles of the suppliant in relation to the man in authority, whether that be a king or a general or or, or simply a, a, a you know a, a great man who has something that he may spare this is um this this is from a rather recent book you, you know it's one of a billion of its type that this is from the book Clemency and Cruelty in the Roman World by Melissa Barden Dowling. And it's from the chapter entitled Clemency and Cruelty Under the the Julio-Claudians, and it's pages 169 to 170. And I quote, Let them hate so long as they fear. Gaius Caligula's policy toward those who offended him and those who did not was carried out in actions of open savidia or brutality, I'm probably destroying that Latin word. His use of fear as a tool of rulership and his disinterest even in the appearance of mercy stood in contrast to the averred principles of his predecessors and most of his successors. For others, clementia or clemency was the watchword advertised by princeps, senators, and subjects alike. The reality of imperial crudelitas, or cruelty, was inescapable, however, and the proclamations of imperial clemency were often loudest when an emperor's savagery was most sharply felt. Gaius departed from Augustus and Tiberius in discarding the careful assurances of Clementia that softened their rule. Tiberius being the emperor at the time of Christ, right? Gaius's successors did not repeat his error. During the reigns of Claudius and Nero, the dialogue of Clementia, clemency, continued in both imperial and elite propaganda. In fact, the definition of clementia developed further under the Julio-Claudians, surpassing the scope that it held under Augustus. 
It was under Nero that the first philosophy of clemency was described by Seneca. But the idea had been around for centuries, many centuries, as we saw last week. As part of his theory of mercy, Seneca constructed a parallel philosophy of cruelty, outlining the degrees of irrationality that underlie cruel actions and highlighting the contrasting benefits of clemency. From Gaius's naked crudelitas to a sophisticated philosophy of clemency in the Julio-Claudian age, Romans experimented with with the vocabulary of power and ultimately created a stronger ethic of mercy to offset the power of the emperor. The normalization of imperial advertisements of the Clementia Principis and the creation of a philosophy of Virtus, which is manly virtue, incorporating Clementia as an expression of a good man's success with the outstanding developments of the ideology and social history of the early empire. These developments and the emergence of a parallel philosophy of cruelty in which the degradation of man's nature was expressed through his crudelitas are the focus of this chapter, and of course I won't get into all that. I just wanted to show that the um, the, the moral climate of the time, once we understand that the Canaanite woman came to Yahshua as a suppliant would come to a king in obedience to him, and agreeing with and supplicating to him in every manner, recognizing his kingship, his legitimate claim to it by calling him the son of David. And once we understand the social philosophy of the time, only then do we realize that Yahshua had, really had little choice in the cultural context and in order to demonstrate his own sense of justice and virtue and mercy in that context, than to grant her what she desired, which she knew and professed was fully within his power. He therefore granted her wish, and he granted it for his own benefit and not for hers, and he granted it as an ensign for us. Therefore, James tells us in his later epistle that, You believe that there is one God, you do well, the devils also believe and tremble. And James is explaining that it is not enough for us merely to believe, but that we must act on that belief. So so to understand the situation with the Canaanite woman, what we really have to understand that the social and political culture of the time, we can't try to understand it on our terms, we have to get back into the civilization of the time and understand it on their terms. And that's why I state the things that I do about the Canaanite woman. And and most Christians who, who attempt to explain what happened there simply don't know the history and culture of the period. Matthew chapter 16. And coming forth, the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying had asked him to show to them a sign from out of heaven. And replying to them, he said, A wicked and adulterous race seeks a sign, and the sign shall not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And leaving them, he departed. 
Jonah, of course, spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, and then he preached to the people of Nineveh. Christ, likewise, spent three days and three nights, unless you're a Catholic and you've tried to squeeze the calendar into an into fit the weekend, right? Christ, likewise, spent three, na- three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, and then his report went out to the world. I, I will discuss those three days and three nights at length when we get to that portion of the scripture where they should be treated, right? Probably Matthew chapter 27, 28. This is indeed an, an amazing sign, and and it's all that anyone would need, right? But but as um as, as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus demonstrates, even if he was crucified and died and appeared three days later to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they still would not have believed him. Here, Yahshua calls his own people, the people in general a wicked and adulterous race. And as we know from our histories, this race was a a mixed group of people of divergent um, divergent ethnic backgrounds, right? That this, um, a a race which was mixed as the Israelites of the time were indeed mixed with the Canaanite Edomites and, and there were some people from mixed backgrounds there, and there were some Israelites there, and there were some Edomites there. There's little doubt from the histories. And and those people would contain people who would hear his voice, and people who would not. And the evil influences, as we see, even though today on our own society, that the, the, um, and I'm going back a hundred years, right, that the people of mixed race are still in a minority. The Jews, the, the Canaanites are still in a minority, but their influences most often prevail. That that's the um, part of the the, the um, action of evil in in the world and in society is that the evil minority will also always make the most noise and and their voices will always prevail. Now there's a pericope. When I say pericope, I mean a section of of, of scripture. Right, it, a pericope means to cut around. There's a pericope wanting here, and and part of what is known as Matthew chapter 16, verse 2, and all of verse 3 is missing in the Christogenian New Testament, and I'll read it here from the King James Version. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather, today for the sky is red and lowering, and, and O ye hypocrites, Ye can discern the face of the day, but ye cannot discern the signs of the times. And and this pericope seems to me not to belong to the original of Matthew, and therefore it's not included in the Christogenian New Testament. There's a similar discourse which is found in Luke, in in Luke 12, verses 54 through 56, where, where Yahshua says pretty much the same thing. And in Luke, it's attested by the manuscripts there that the discourse is indeed certainly a part of the original. The pericope here appears in the Codices Ephraimi Siri, the Bazai and the Washingtonensis, and, and that's because it's kept in Washington, D.C., that codex. And, and although they do not totally agree on the reading all of those manuscripts are from the 5th century, 
and the Textus Receptus follows them, and, and some of later manuscripts. And, and this is, it, it seems trite, right? But, but it's important because a pattern is evident when we look at the ancient manuscripts and we look at the King James Version. The Textus Receptus and similar medieval manuscripts, which ultimately gave us the King James Version, such as the Stephanus and the Elzevir manuscripts, those manuscripts nearly always follow the departures and the interpolations of the, of the codices, which come from the Alexandrian tradition, uh, among which is the Ephraim series, or the Codex Bazai. And the Codex Bazai has many further and sometimes strange departures and interpolations. And that's worthy of note because we'll see that pattern all throughout the scripture where the King James is basically based. A lot of King James supporters claim that it's not based on the Alexandrian tradition. But in reality, when you actually study the manuscripts, the King James is very close to what's known as the Alexandrian tradition of the scripture. And wherever it – the, the – um, Alexandrian manuscripts, which the primary two are the Codex Alexandrinus and the Codex Ephraimi Siri. And, and wherever the King James departs from the older codices, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, which both date to the 4th century, and those two don't always agree with each other, but wherever the King James departs from them, it's following almost always the Alexandrian tradition or sometimes the Codex Bazai. And, and the Codex Bizarre is, I, I like to call it the Codex Bizarre, because it has some strange readings in it, and, and it has some strange departures. And, and um, I, I, I just hold it, I, I just have to hold it suspect. It, it's um, the, the preponderance of the papyri that have been found can agree with the Codex Vaticanus or the Codex Sinaiticus, and, and do so most more often than they agree with the, the um, Alexandrian tradition, but especially more often than they agree with the Codex Bazai, and, and that's my assessment. Okay, I'm sorry to bother you with all those details, but i got to get them off my chest, and, and they have to be out there, right? We'll see another similar circumstance of this at Matthew 17:21. Matthew 16, verse 5. And the students, having come to the other side, forgot to take bread. The inference is that they departed from Magadan the same way that they arrived there, as it says at the end of Matthew chapter 15, that they arrived there by sea, right? Then Yahshua said to them, watch and be on guard because of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they, meaning the students, the disciples, disputed among themselves, saying that we did not take bread. But Yahshua, knowing it, said, why do you dispute among yourselves, you of little faith, because you do not have bread? Do you not yet perceive, nor do you remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets of excess fragments you had taken, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many creels you had taken of leftovers? How do you not perceive that it is not concerning the wheat loaves that I spoke to you, but be on guard because of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to be on guard because of the leaven of the wheat loaves, in other words, the leaven that you would put into bread, into dough, but because of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples, here it is evident, 
had a greater care for worldly things. They were more interested in, in, in what they may eat than for the more important matters at hand, which was how they should perceive the world around them. So when he mentioned the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they had loaves of bread on their mind, right? And, and we see that all the time today. Um, it's, it's in a lot of people in the world today. That's all they're thinking about is their belly or what they're going to drink. We also have to examine the words of Christ closely, and, and we have to examine life closely, and, and to make sure that we are interpreting Christ correctly or, or the, the events in our lives, and not to simply and, endeavor, to, to fulfill, endeavor to fulfill our worldly desires. And that's the lesson we get out of this event, right? It must be mentioned that the remarkable thing about leaven is that it causes the loaf of bread to rise, but it can't be seen when it is in the flour. So leaven changes the nature of the grain without even being detected. If we care for things of the world more than the things of God, we will forever be blind to the leaven in our hearts. Verse 13. Then Yahshua, having come into the regions of Caesarea Philippus, questioned his students, saying, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Caesarea Philippus was 20 miles north of the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Here the disciples were merely repeating the things that they had heard from others as they were asked. We already saw in Matthew chapter 14 that when Herod the Tetrarch heard of Christ, he thought that Christ was John the Baptist arisen from the dead, and the, the disciples repeat that idea here. Others may well have been of that same opinion. And while Peter, as we're going to see shortly, Peter answers Joshua's next question correctly by stating that Christ is the anointed son of the living God. And I'd like to read a, a, a section of John, because we'll see that a long time before this particular event, the, the, the apostles, those who were chosen to be apostles, had already known that. So Peter's not really saying anything that, that's new and unknown to the apostles. And this is John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day he desired to depart for Galilee, and he finds Philippus talking about Christ. And Yahshua says to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, which means house of fish, from the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathaniel and says to him, he whom Moses and the prophets had written about in the law. Yahshua, the son of Joseph from, we have found Yahshua, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So right there, Philip, it is, John is telling us that Philip knew immediately that this was the Christ who was telling him to follow him. Somehow, Philip knew it right away. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good be from Nazareth? Philip says to him, come and see. And actually, the prophet Jonah was from, from Galilee. Joshua saw Nathanael coming towards him, and he says about him, Look, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Nathanael says to him, From where do you know me? 
Yahshua replied and said, Before Philip called you, being under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael replied to him, Rabbi, you are the son of Yahweh. You are the king of Israel. So Nathanael, like Philip, also recognized that he was the Messiah as soon as he saw him. Yahshua replied and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Greater than these things you shall see. And he says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heaven having been opened and the messengers of Yahweh ascending and descending before the Son of Man. So the apostles had known long before this event with Peter who he was. And, and obviously some of them knew it as soon as they first saw him, not only from the account in the first chapter of John, but also from the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, the story of the, the Magi early in the Gospel of Matthew, do we see many other people were expecting the Messiah at this time. And, and I would say that most people who were expecting, I mean the Magi had writing that we obviously don't have any longer. However, I'm certain that most people were expecting the Messiah from the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. That that would be my my um my guess. One more example is Luke two twenty five, and and there's there's little subtleties in the grammar that a lot of people often miss. And in Luke two twenty five, we see that Simeon was a devout man who was, and I'll quote Luke, expecting the consolation of Israel, and that means that. Simeon was was expecting the Messiah who was promised, right? That's the consolation of Israel. So so we see that many people had this expectation. And now I'll continue with Matthew, chapter 16, verse 15. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? And replying, Simon Peter said, you are the anointed son of Yahweh who is living. And replying, Yahshua said to him, blessed you are. Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood have not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. And I say to you, and there's an important distinction here that the churches always miss, and I say to you that you are a stone. That's what the word Petros means. Yet upon this bedrock, and there the word is Petra, not Petros, Upon this bedrock shall I build my assembly, I'm sorry, and the gates of hate shall not prevail against it. I shall give to you the little keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and he whom you should bind upon the earth shall be bound in the heavens, and he whom you should release upon the earth shall be released in the heavens. He ordered the students in order that they would tell no one, that he is the anointed one, meaning the Christ. Now, this phrase, um, I didn't treat it in my notes today. I will get to it in two chapters, I think, or three. But we could tell from language in Josephus that to bind people upon the earth and to release people upon the earth pretty much refers to the... Um, giving over of authority to the people of God. And, and they use that same language referring to the, the regular and typical 
arrests made by the Pharisees and, and the religious authorities of the time. And, and I will elucidate on that further later in this series. But, but it, it doesn't really, in the context of the first century, it doesn't have any spiritual meaning. What it has is it has a, a meaning that's related to ecclesiastical authority. And when I say ecclesiastical authority, I don't mean the Pope of Rome or, or the mainstream churches. When I say ecclesiastical authority, I mean the authority which the assemblies of God's people on earth should have. And, and that's what that, that, that's referring to. And, and I'll, I'll demonstrate that from the history of Josephus a little later on in the series. That the, um, the medieval Roman Catholic Church has purposely misinterpreted this passage in conjunction with some unprovable claims concerning the Apostle Peter and the first Christian assemblies in Rome, claiming that Peter founded them when Peter wasn't there. And they do so in order to create the authority that it claimed so that they could rule over Christendom. Christ is not saying here that Peter was the bedrock upon which the Ecclesia, which is the body of true Christians in the world, was founded. That's not what Christ is saying here at all. Rather, Christ was telling Peter that while he had known this remarkable truth, which is that Yahshua was indeed the Christ promised by the word of God through the ancient prophets, Peter was nevertheless only a stone. The word Petros is a stone, a small stone that you could pick up and throw and with your hands, right? And that his ecclesia, the ecclesia of Christ, the real assembly of his people, that would be founded on Petra. And Petra is bedrock. Petra is something much greater than a stone. So Christ isn't likening Peter to the bedrock upon which the church would be founded. That's simply not true. Christ is contrasting Peter to the bedrock upon which his assembly would be founded. Because Petros, while Petros is a little stone, Petra is a large, immovable rock fixed in the ground. That's what the word, the, the meaning that the word infers. And, and I translate Petra as bedrock, as it should be, and Petros as a stone. So Christ is telling Peter that he's only a stone, but he's going to found his assembly on bedrock. And, and that's what's going on here. And, and the Catholics can't use it to support their, their phony theology and, and their, um, their, their assertions of authority over people that, they, that are untrue and unfounded in Scripture. Peter was called a Petros, which is a stone. Christ said that his ecclesia would be founded upon Petra, which is the large rock of the earth, which would best be described as bedrock. Therefore, Peter continues the analogy and confirms its appropriate interpretation, where in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he tells us that, quote, ye also are lively stones built up a spiritual house. 
So Christ is telling Peter that he's just a stone, and Peter is in turn telling each of each of us, because he's writing to the uncircumcised in his um in in his two epistles. Peter is telling us that we are each stones, and each one of us, as Paul often explains, are a stone in the house of God, provided that we're all children of Israel, right? On the phrase, the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. That that basically um, signifies the end of death that we see in the Revelation, right? It's basically an, an, an iteration of that same idea. Job, in Job 38.17, asks, Had the gates of death been opened unto thee, or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? From the apocryphal book called The Wisdom of Solomon, sometimes called Ecclesiastes, Another book which um, certainly should have been included in the canon, and it probably wasn't because, among other things, it discusses adultery as race mixing, and it condemns race mixing, which is not pleasing to the agenda of our enemies, right? We read the following in chapter 13, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. For it was neither herb nor mollifying plaster that restored them to health, but the word, O Yahweh, which heals all things. For thou hast power of life and death, thou leadest to the gates of hell and bring, bringest up again. And the word hell there is Hades in Greek. I rendered the word Hades. It's a Greek word. And that's only a transliteration. Hades was not simply the grave, but rather Hades was the abode of the dead, the underworld, the place which contained the spirits of the deceased. I have actually both heard and read expressions of distaste from Christian writers that Christ represented an and repeated an idea here using this word Hades, which seen, which is seen to be pagan. But the idea which the word Hades represents certainly was not exclusive to the Greeks. Our concept, which in my opinion, I'm sorry, one concept, well, which in my opinion binds all ancient Aryan cultures together, was the concept of the eternal continuance of the spirit, its residency in an abode of the dead, and the expressed hope of emerging from the dead. This concept is seen in the early religions of all Aryan cultures. And we can see its expression as the underworld of Sumer and Akkad. And, and they wrote, for instance, there's one story, ancient Sumerian manuscript, which was found on clay tablets, which is called Inanna's Descent to the Netherworld. And they wrote about it often. The Sheol of the Hebrews, the Hades of the Greeks, the Nisselheim, of the Germanic tribes. Let me say that Nessel, 
which is where I believe Niflheim comes from, right? Nephel is a Hebrew word which means fallen. So Niflheim in Germanic lore is the home of those who have fallen, those who have died. The ancients also believed in a glorious and eternal place for the spirits of those who have gained the favor of the gods or of God. And manifestations of that belief are seen in the ideas of Olympus or Valhalla or the Isles of the Blessed. So the idea of heaven and hell, of a glorious afterlife, and of a place, a prison for the souls of the dead, right? But which we see that Christ smashed the gates of Hades, and, and that's a topic for another time. There is no hell for his people. Not anymore. But well, these ideas have been with our entire race, which, which to me is an indication that the Hebrew Bible has an Aryan origin. If it had a Jewish origin, of course, it would be a book about banking and, and maybe running a whorehouse or a gambling operation. Verse 21. From that time, Joshua began to explain to his students that it is necessary for him to depart for Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and the high priests and the scribes and to be slain and raised on the third day. As we just saw, he revealed that purpose in the, in, in the statement concerning the, the belly of the whale and the prophet Jonah, right? And taking him aside, Petros began to admonish him, saying, Mercy to you, prince. This shall not be for you. And turning, he said to Petros, Get behind me, adversary, as the King James has that, get behind me, Satan. Are you a trap for me because you mind not the affairs of Yahweh, but the affairs of men? Peter is not Satan. In the spiritual sense of the word, as it is applied to all those born outside of the will and decree of Yahweh, being kind after kind, who are naturally and eternally opposed to Yahweh. They are the Satan, collectively. Rather, Peter is merely an adversary, which is the literal meaning of the Hebrew word. Yahshua knew what his mission was, Yet Peter denied it, and he was thereby being adversarial to Yahshua, which is why Yahshua rebuked him in such a manner. So many fools would wrongly claim that Peter could somehow be Satan with a capital S, and therefore Satan could not be a genetic entity. And those people ignore the fact that the word is a simple adjective first, Yet, when it is used with a definite article in a, grammar, a grammatical construction known as a substantive, then it describes a particular entity. Here, however, it is merely an adjective. So we can't use Yahshua's calling Satan, Peter Satan with a small s. We cannot use that to disprove the existence of Satan with a capital S, which is the um, genetic entity that descended from 
that original Satan, the serpent in the garden, right? And, and the, the entire collection back then. It, there was a group of them back then. Back then, that's why they're called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and it's Revelation chapter 12 that explicitly ties all that together. Then Yahshua said to his students, if one desires to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm going to spend a good deal of time on this one simple verse, Matthew 16:24. This statement reflects one of the most important principles of Christianity, which most Christians today, or, or so-called Christians, right, Judeo-Christians, are, hard, are not even cognizant of, and even some Christian identists are not cognizant of it. We should give our lives for our brethren, as Christ gave his life for us. If one desires to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't necessarily mean that we must die for our race, as Christ died for his chosen race. Except, of course, if it was necessary, it rather means that we should devote our lives to our people, whether in life or by death. And here I'm going to take a divergence. I'm going to discuss a certain political philosophy from what many may think is an unlikely source, Adolf Hitler. Now, I know that this will rankle a lot of so-called Christians, those who are lukewarm, those who shudder at the name, because of the manner in which the Jews have soiled it. If you become rankled at this, if you refuse to look at Nazi Germany objectively, meaning without the avalanche of slurs found in the propaganda of the Jewish-controlled media, then it is fully evident that like those worldly people described earlier this evening, you will always be blind to the leaven of the Pharisees. The following is adopted from um, the notes on Hitler and Christianity from the Christogenia Mein Kampf Project website. From the Mercy Translation on Mein Kampf, of Mein Kampf on page 125, and I quote, What we have to fight for is the necessary security for the existence and increase of our race and our people, the subsistence of its children, and the maintenance of our racial stock unmixed, the freedom of and independence of the fatherland so that our people may be enabled to fulfill the mission assigned to it by the Creator, end of quote. I may add, to build the kingdom of heaven, which Hitler understood that only Aryan man could do. Again, the idea of giving one's life for one's people does not necessarily mean dying prematurely for them. However, that too at times may be a necessity. What it means is devoting the devoting of one's life to the well-being of one's kin, of one's wider ethnic family. Hitler's own thought in this area is a perfect product of the gospel. Of course, Hitler himself was far from perfect, being just a man. But his political thought 
was a product of Christianity, and he often stressed the need for individual sacrifice on behalf of the race throughout his philosophy. We're going to spend the next 15 minutes talking about and illustrating just that. First, I would like to examine a few other New Testament scriptures that elucidate this philosophy as a Christian philosophy. From John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18, and I won't quote them all, but parts of it. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 17. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. Our earliest Germanic and Celtic ancestors, and this is written about by many of the Greek historians, did not fear death in battle. They had no concern for the world. They only had concern for their people and the glory of their people. They had that lack of concern because they believed that they would live forever. Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. And he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 23, verses 10 and 12. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And whoever shall humble himself and serve his kin shall be exalted. It is evident from these scriptures and others that we are to follow Yahshua's example by giving up or at least by devoting our lives to the benefit of our kindred, which is the nation in the proper sense and usage of the term, not as a political and geographic entity, but as a single race of people living together under one government, that's a proper nation. If Christians devoted each of their lives to the nation rather than to their own self-enrichment, how much better off would the nation be as a whole? And Yahweh God would surely reward the individual who did these things. What follows are some quotes from Mein Kampf, which surely demonstrate that Hitler had fully incorporated this Christian philosophy into his own political philosophy. From Mein Kampf, page 146, the right to personal freedom comes second in importance to the duty of maintaining the race. Mein Kampf, page 94, the sacrifice of the individual existence is necessary in order to assure the conservation of the race. Hence, it is that the most essential condition for the establishment and maintenance of the state is a certain feeling of solidarity wounded in, a, in an identity of character and race and in a resolute, I'm sorry, that should probably be founded in an identity of character and race and in a resolute readiness 
to defend these at all costs. Mein Kampf, page 168. The readiness to sacrifice one's personal work and, if necessary, even one's life for others shows its most highly developed form in the Aryan race. In other words, we have this written in our hearts. The greatness of the Aryan is not based on his intellectual powers, but rather on his willingness to devote all his faculties to the service of the community. Here the instinct for self-preservation has reached its noblest form. For the Aryan willingly subordinates his own ego to the common wheel, and when necessity calls, he will even sacrifice his own life for the community. Let me say here that the concept of stardom, which we see in recent times, is actually antithetical to Christianity. To the Jew, a unified nation is anathema. So the one tendency of the Jew is to divide society by creating the star or the personality. This fragments the nation into a collection of individuals, each seeking after their own interests and not caring for the interests of the nation. It is not by chance that the Jews love to call them idols. And today, through the Jewish mass media, we see that idea on steroids. That's why we have become such a narcissistic society to the destruction of the whole. We've become 50 million little units with our own mind and our own interests and no care for anybody else, or maybe 500 million, right? From Mein Kampf, page 169. In the German language, we have a word which admirably expresses this underlying spirit of all work. I'm probably going to destroy this word. It is Flichterfüllung, which means the service of the common wheel before the consideration of one's own interests. The fundamental spirit out of which this kind of activity springs is the contradistinction of egotism and what we call idealism. Hitler was warning us about the 70s, 80s, and 90s back in the 20s and 30s, right? By this we mean to signify the willingness of the of the individual to make sacrifices for the community and his fellow men. To this kind of mentality, the Aryan owes his position in the world. The government has replaced us in this role, so the government has become our god. And the world is indebted to the Aryan mind for having developed the concept of mankind. The other races never did that. And they're not meant in the original expression of it. For it is out of the spirit alone that the creative force has come, which in a unique way combined robust muscular power with the first-class intellect and thus created the monuments of human civilization. Some of our own Christian states here in America were founded on the same principle of service of the common wheel. We have several states that are called commonwealths. That's what commonwealth means. 
Of course, it does not mean redistribution of the fruits of one's labor and welfare handouts, and I'm going to take a, a, a little divergence again and discuss that, because for that we can compare Hitler's statements on page 27 of Mein Kampf, and we'll compare them to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf, page 27. During my struggle for existence in Vienna, I perceived very clearly that the aim of all social activity must never be merely charitable relief, which is ridiculous and useless, but it must rather be a means to find a way of eliminating the fundamental deficiencies in our economic and cultural life, deficiencies which necessarily bring about the degradation of the individual or at least lead him towards such degradation. Hitler did not believe in handouts. There's several passages in Mein Kampf which prove that. Rather, National Socialism was about lifting your brother up to your level. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 and 11. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Verse 11 sounds as if it's talking about Soviet apparatchiks. From Mein Kampf, page 239. The man who loves his nation can prove the sincerity of the sentiment only by being ready to make sacrifices for the nation's welfare. In other words, you can't have the little Chinese girl because it'll prevent you from producing children suitable for your brethren to meet with. There is no such thing as a national sentiment which is directed towards personal interests. And there is no such thing as a nationalism that embraces only certain classes. Cheering proves nothing and does not confer the right to call oneself national if behind that shout there is no sincere preoccupation for the conservation of the nation's well-being. One can be proud of one's people only if there is no class left of which one need to be ashamed. When one half of a nation is sunk in misery and worn out by hard distress or even depraved or degenerate, that nation presents an unattractive picture that nobody can feel proud to belong to. So we have America today. It is only when a nation is sound in all its members, physically and morally, that the joy, physically and morally, that the joy of belonging to it can be properly intensified to the supreme feeling which we call national pride. But this pride, in its highest form, can be felt only by those who know the greatness of their nation. I would say that it is impossible for aliens to share these sentiments with the host nation. Aliens are always out for the interests of their own race at the expense of the host nation. All of the aliens admitted into this nation, the United States, since the 1960s, along with the elevation of the Negro in society, as so-called equals, has always served to destroy the fabric of the nation. We see it here, and we see it in Europe. It is inevitable, wherever it is allowed, that alien immigration destroys the host nation. There are other such comments throughout Mein Kampf. These attitudes are not found in pagan Germanic poetry, or at least I have not seen them, 
and I believe that one would be hard-pressed to find sufficiently convincing examples. What I have seen from the Eddas and the Nibelungen lead and other such works was an emphasis on personal glorification and enrichment and the willingness to intermarry with those of other nations and or races if there is a perception that it may benefit things such as trade and diplomatic relations. This is entirely evident in the Nibelungen lead where the Frankish princes, I'm sorry, the Frankish princess, Kreinhild, is quickly married off to Attila the Hun after the murder of her husband, Siegfried. No Jew could understand the importance of individual sacrifice for the love of one's nation to the extent which Hitler did, and those who smear Hitler as a Jew or some sort of Zionist agent are playing whore for the Jew. Rather, if we understood Hitler's political philosophy and just how it withstood both Jewish capitalist and Jewish communism, only then could we understand why the Jews campaigned so hard to destroy it and to destroy a good Christian nation along with it. I made that divergence so that we could see the philosophy which Christ espoused applied in a political philosophy and national socialism, if one looks at Mein Kampf carefully, is a political philosophy which employs fully the principles of Christ. Okay, now back to Matthew. Verse 25, chapter 16. For he who would wish to save his life shall lose it, and he who would lose his life because of me shall find it. A reward is found in doing his will, regardless of the perceived earthly cost. I hear from so many people, even in Christian identity, concerns about what others are going to think of them. In fact, I believe it's those concerns that led to my ultimate division with Eli James, who, on January 23rd, on his Voice of Christian Israel program, said that my, and especially Clifton's, interpretation of the Genesis events couldn't possibly be true, because the world would think that we we are evil, wicked people, and we would never convince mainstream Christians of Christian identity. And and that's paraphrasing Eli's words, but he chose the world over the gospel, and his remarks on that program prove it beyond doubt. I don't care what the world thinks. I care what the Christ says. And that's how we all should feel. For he who would wish to save his life shall lose it, and he who would lose his life because of me shall find it. We seek to please God and not men. Verse 26. For what shall it benefit a man if perhaps he should gain the whole society or world, but his life is lost. 
Or what shall a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with the splendor of his father and his messenger, messengers, angels, and then he shall render to each according to his practices. Truly I say to you that there are some of those standing here who shall by no means taste death until when they should see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In other words, they wouldn't taste death at all. If we labor for the accumulation of the riches of the world, then we lose our reward in heaven. As Christ tells us elsewhere, such as at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, where he states, and I quote, Lay not up to yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up to yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We work for the treasures of heaven by keeping his law, loving our brother and devoting ourselves to them. Many people point to this last statement, Truly I say to you that there are some of those standing here who shall no, by no means taste death until when they should see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. First they point to this last statement in order to prove the idea of preterism. An idea which is demonstrably false in the light of many other prophecies and passages of scripture. It is evident from our experience that the bodies of those people standing with Christ certainly died. But what we must ask is whether they themselves actually experienced that death. It is evident in many scriptures that the consciousness indeed exists apart from the physical body. Another answer may be found in the account of the event which could well, which follows, however, it is also evident that some things are outside of any knowledge which we could be certain of presently. We can't possibly know everything, right? Two men appear in the transfiguration on the mount, which we're about to cover in Matthew chapter 17. The transfigure on the, in the transfigure, I'm sorry, in the Transfiguration on the Mount, as it is called, Moses and Elijah both appear with Christ to the apostles. If we look back in the, in, in the um, Old Testament accounts, Elijah was taken physically by Yahweh. His body was taken into heaven. In the flaming chariot event described in 2 Kings chapter 2, but Moses as it is described in Deuteronomy chapter 34, physically died and his body was buried in the land of Moab. Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Joshua takes Peter and Jacob, or James, and John, his brother, and brings them up, to, up onto a high mountain by themselves. And he was transformed before men. 
and his face shined like the sun, and his garments became white like light. And behold, Moses appeared to them, and Elijah speaking together with him. Then responding, Peter said to Yahshua, Prince, it is good for us to be here. As you desire, I shall make here three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Uh, I guess Peter was pretty excited about what was going on, right? Yet upon his speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am pleased. You hear him. There we have God the Father speaking about God the Son. And hearing it, the students had fallen upon their faces and feared exceedingly. And Yahshua came forth and taking hold of them said, Arise and do not fear. And raising their eyes, they saw no one except Yahshua himself only. First, I'd like to answer the proponents of reincarnation who like to point to John the Baptist for support of their contentions. If John was actually Elijah, Peter and the apostles would have recognized Elijah as John the Baptist here, right? Since they met John personally. Yet, they did not recognize Elijah as John the Baptist. They recognized Elijah as Elijah. They may have not recognized him, and later on Christ told them who it was, which is a possibility that we cannot rule out, because this is being recorded by Matthew after the fact, right? Therefore, the idea that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah must mean something totally different than the um, assertions of reincarnation that some fools try to purport. This event, popularly called the Transfiguration on the Mount, appears in Matthew 17 here, in Mark 9, and in Luke 9. There is no reason to doubt its veracity and the authenticity of the account. It seems to be original in all the oldest manuscripts. Let it also be said that the appearance of spiritual apparitions is a theme which appears elsewhere in the New Testament such as when Christ walked on the water, the apostles thought it was an apparition and not him. And much later, when Peter stood at the gate of a certain house after his escape from prison, when his fellows had given him up for dead, they, the people in the house thought it was an apparition and not Peter, right? They said, oh, it's not him, it's his angel, as we see in, um, in the book of Acts. Yahweh is the God of the living. He is not the God of the dead. That assertion by Christ is fully evident. Once it is understood that after those who have the Spirit of God, which is bestowed upon the Adamic race, after they die, they nevertheless remain living in the Spirit. And they obviously also retain their consciousness and therefore their personality and identity. But those who are without that spirit, as Jude tells us in his epistle, are twice dead, meaning that once they die in the body, they are also dead spiritually. There is nothing in them that continues. They are broken cisterns which can hold no water, clouds without water. Thus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, 
But we have this treasure in earth and vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That treasure in earth and vessels is the spirit which we have from God, which continues to live after this body dies. And I do believe it was Moses and Elijah on that mountain with Christ, just as all of the oldest manuscripts of the gospel attest. And if it weren't, then we have no hope. Because we are the most miserable of men, as Paul tells us. That hope has been with us, with our race, since the dawn of time. And upon their descending from the mountain, Yahshua commanded them, saying, Tell no one of this sight until when the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the students questioned him, saying, So why do the scribes say that it is necessary for Elijah to come first? And he, replying, said, Indeed, Elijah comes, and he shall restore all things. Christ is talking there about the future, right? But I say to you that Elijah has already come, and here he's talking about the past. And they did not recognize him, but did with him whatever they had desired. Thusly also, the Son of Man is going to suffer by them. Then the students understood that he spoke to them concerning John the Baptist. Here, Yahshua tells us that Elijah is to come, and that Elijah has already come. Elijah is evidently being used as a type. First, he's a type for John the Baptist, and then for that future Elijah promised by the prophecy in Malachi, who shall turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. So it is not speaking of Elijah literally, but of men with the same abilities and kindred spirit as Elijah, who are being called by the name of Elijah figuratively. Therefore, let us examine a few of the passages in the related prophecy in Malachi. And I'll read from Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Notice that Yahweh says before me, meaning him. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh. Even the messenger of the covenant, the new covenant, that's a promise of the new covenant, whom ye delight in, or which ye delight in, he, behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. So Yahweh is saying that a messenger will come before his face, and that messenger will do these things. Yahweh being Christ, the messenger has to be John the Baptist. This is speaking of the messenger, and describes the mission which we saw John the Baptist actually fulfill. 
he shall purify the sons of Levi. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto Yahweh, as in the days of old, as in the former years. That's Malachi 3.4. And this describes those who turn to Christianity in Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 6. For I am Yahweh, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. This describes the immutability of the promise, and it also elucidates the treachery of the dispensationalist sects of today. Verse 7. Even from the days of your fathers, you were gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you saith Yahweh of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? I would say, and that's the end of my quote, we can only return to Yahweh through Christ, who is, as he tells us, and as it is written, the door of the sheep, and no one can go to the Father except through him. The messenger who went before his face who preceded, preceded his own mission, was indeed John the Baptist, and was also prophesied of by Isaiah as the voice crying in the wilderness, who prepared his way before him. By fulfilling the Old Testament law, requiring the cleansing of both the priests, the Levites, and the Lamb, which is why Yahshua himself was baptized, in preparation for the sacrifice. That fulfilled the law. So John was the Elijah who had come, and they did with him what they wished by killing him. Malachi, chapter 4, then prophecies the Elijah who shall come, who Christ says, shall restore all things. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. No, Eli, the Canaanites are not going back to Mexico or Canaan. And the day shall come, the day that shall come shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. That's the restoration of all those who were not born of God. Verse 2. But unto you to fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. That is a description of the ancient Aryan phoenix symbol. And our entire race had this promise. Genesis 3.22, I believe. And ye shall go forth and draw up the calves of the soul, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. Cross-reference that to Micah chapter 4, where it says, Arise and fresh, O daughter of Zion. Cross-reference that to Ezekiel chapter 38, where it says that at the second coming of Christ, it will take us seven months to bury the bodies of all of those who have surrounded us.
Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we see that the restoration of all things is in Scripture, the restoration of the children of Yahweh to the recognition of the covenants of their fathers. I believe we witnessed that, as Clifton has often mentioned, only in the Christian identity message. Horeb was another name for Mount Sinai. The restoration of all things is described as the coming destruction of all the ungodly, so that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of those who are made in the image of God, can come to fruition. All of those who find a universalist message in the phrase, restoration of all things, are fools, since it obviously refers here only to a restoration of all things pertaining to the people of Israel, who had then divorced from Yahweh, but who are now reconciled to him in Christ. Acts chapter 3.21 is speaking of Christ, quote, whom it is indeed necessary for heaven to receive until the times of the restoration of all which Yahweh had spoken through the mouths of the saints as prophets from of old. We find that restoration in Isaiah, where Yahweh says that he gathers the outcasts of Israel. We find it here where he says that all the wicked will be destroyed and that Israel will be restored. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And he has given the ambassadors, the interpreters of prophecy. This is Paul. And those who delivered a good message, and the shepherds, teachers, towards the restoration of the saints. The word saints meaning the separate people for the work of ministering for the building of the body of the anointed, until we all would attain to the unity of the faith and of the acknowledgement of the Son of Yahweh, at man perfected, at the measure of the stature of the fullness of the anointed, in order that we would be infants no longer being tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men in villainy for the sake of the systematizing of deception. But speaking the truth with love, we may increase all things for he who is the head, the Christ, from whom the whole body is being joined together and is being reconciled through the every stroke of assistance according to the operation of each single part in proportion. The growth of the body creates itself into a building in love. That is the restoration of all things, the full reconciliation of the children of Israel to the polity of Yahweh and nothing more. All of the wicked, everybody not found righteous by Yahweh, will be destroyed. And as a matter of prophecy, only the children of Israel are to be found righteous by Yahweh. And I would challenge Eli James to show me anything different. 
Verse 14. And upon coming to the crowd, a man approached him, falling on his knees and saying, Prince, have mercy upon my son, because he is an epileptic and has a malady, an illness. For many times he falls into fire, many times into the water. And I brought him to your students, yet they have not been able to heal him. And replying, Yahshua said, O faithless and perverted race, until when must I be with you? Or how long must I be with you? Until when must I put up with you? Or how long must I put up with you? I chose a literal translation. Bring him here to me. And Yahshua admonished him, and the demon came out from him. And the child had been healed from that moment. The phrase, faithless and perverted race, is a remark about Israel and not about the Jews. As has been explained previously, the children of Israel were faithless and perverted because of the alien element among them, which, having usurped authority in the kingdom, had led them away from true instruction, from true education in a word, into a host of errors and misconceptions. The same thing could be said generally about white people today. They are faithless, and they are perverted. Their minds are corrupted from the truth. Verse 19. Then the students, having approached Joshua by themselves, said, For what reason had we not been able to cast it out? Meaning the demon. And he says to them, For reason of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you would have faith as a grain of mustard, you will say to this mountain, Move from there to there. And it shall be moved, and there is nothing impossible for you. Verse 21 is again wanting in the Christogenian New Testament, and therefore I will read it from the King James Version. Howbeit this kind goes not out by prayer, but, or except, by prayer and fasting. And this verse seems to me not to belong to the original, and therefore I have omitted it from my translation. It appears in the codices Ephraim Siri. Bezai, and Washingtonensis, which are all from the 5th century. It's in the later Textus Receptus, as I explained earlier, of, of other verses that, that appear in these manuscripts. But it does not appear in the 4th century codices, the Codex Sinaiticus or the Codex Vaticanus, which I believe, not only because they're the oldest, but I believe them to be more reliable and of greater authority than the Codex Bazai or the Codex Ephraim Siri. Verse 22. Then upon their gathering in Galilee, Yahshua said to them, The Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men, and they shall slay him, and on the third day he shall be raised. And they were grieved exceedingly. Christ repeatedly told them exactly what would happen, and even though here it shows that they were distressed, they still seem never to be able to perceive exactly how, how serious he was about what was going to happen until it actually did happen, and then they remembered his writings. Surely this also was a demonstration that, though there be evidence right before us, we, we, we are only able to see what God wills us to be able to see. And, and I'll be talking about 
I'll be talking more on this topic later as it's elucidated in Scripture, but we've already seen that Peter actually argued with him that it wasn't going to be that way, and, and Christ had to rebuke him. Verse 24, Then upon their having come into Capernaum, those collecting the tax came forth to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter says, Yes. Peter didn't go ask. He just said, yes, he does pay the tax. And coming into the house, Joshua had anticipated him, saying, What does it seem to you, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth receive duties or taxes? From their sons or from aliens? And upon his saying, from aliens, Joshua said to him, Then indeed the sons are free. But in order that we would not offend them, going to the sea, cast a fish hook, and you must take the first fish coming up, and opening its mouth, you shall find a silver coin. Taking that, give it to them for me and for you. And the primary lesson here, I believe, is that Christ consistently complied with the customs of the time, having subjected himself to the society which he originally created, although it had certainly become corrupt. That will be all for tonight. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with Matthew chapter 18. Praise Yahweh. Good night.